Welcome to Reframe and Reset Your Career, a career development podcast to help if you're looking for a job, feeling stuck in your career, looking to change your perspective, or just rediscover your why. I'm your host, Harsha Borolesa, and this podcast came about from my passion for neuroscience and psychology and their interaction with career and personal development. In each episode, I will be interviewing recognized experts and successful professionals and asking them about their career journey, their real life experiences, and to share the insights and strategies that have helped their careers thrive. Implementing change is not easy and does take time, but I do hope that their stories will inspire you to take a fresh look at your career and assist you on your path to a more successful and fulfilling career. Here are some highlights of today's episode. Sometimes when we have too many decisions to make, we can get stuck in analysis paralysis. And our emotional centers over over years get more and more more sensitized to the, the triggers. And sometimes the reactions can get stronger and stronger. We need to figure out why we form relationships with certain people and what effect these relationships have on us. Welcome to Reframe and Reset Your Career. It is my absolute pleasure to have Dr. Garbia Tolakita as my first ever guest today. I first met Garbia at one of her lectures three years ago, and she helped inspire my passion for neuroscience. And without her, today would just not have happened. So thank you so much, Garbia. Oh, thank you so much. And by the way, you're probably the only presenter that can pronounce my name <laughs> correctly. Well, well I, I've heard it probably over 30 <laughs> or 40 times. So. Yeah. <laughs> so Gabia is a neuroscientist, lecturer and performance and well-being coach. She's currently a lecturer in psychology at Sheffield Hallam University. She will also soon be a published author as her first book, Why the F Can't I Change, will be published in January. Gabia completed her PhD at University College London, and her PhD findings were published in one of the highest impact research journals, Nature Neuroscience, in 2017. Prior to that, she undertook award-winning research on Parkinson's disease at the University of Helsinki. During her PhD, Gabia also qualified as a business coach and coached UCL academics and administrative staff. Combining her neuroscience background with coaching experience, Gabia started her own consulting company, providing coaching and seminars for organizations and the general public. And that's where we met. Gabia is also a TEDx speaker and her work has been featured in The Guardian. Welcome, Garbia. I'm brilliant. Lovely to be here. Before we start talking about neuroscience in your book, would you mind giving a brief overview of how you became interested in neuroscience and your career journey? I think one of the first points that I was really interested in neuroscience was uh, as a child, I suffered from terrible migraines. And as a result, I was taken for brain scans and, and, and seen a neurologist. And I found really, really fascinating when he was explaining to me about the brain. I was only eight or nine at that time. Wow. Uh, so it was very, very, for me, it just seemed like some sort of magic door has opened. Uh, secondly, the other kind of point that added to it was quite sad one. Uh, my dad had a stroke. And after his first stroke, he unfortunately had three of them. But after the first one, he lost all of the functions. So he couldn't talk, he couldn't walk, he couldn't, he was paralyzed. He was like, you know, like a newborn baby in terms of his ability to do the tasks we take for granted. He went through really intense rehabilitation for three months. And after three months, he could do everything again. 
And for me, that was like such a like miracle moment, seeing him at the start point, like I couldn't recognize him, to actually being back to where he was before. And when I saw his brain scans, like, like the huge chunk of his brain was missing. And oh. I was like, how, how is that possible? So that got me really interested in brain plasticity and the brain's ability to change. And further, you know, once I was always interested in, in natural sciences and research, so that just seemed like an obvious choice to choose to choose neuroscience. Now, when doing a research, so I did research in three different universities, three different countries. So initially in Vilnius University, then Helsinki University, then UCL in UK. I, although I really enjoyed learning about the brain, but the fact that in the research, um, you know, there was, we had to choose really, really small question and work on it just seemed a little bit limiting. It seemed interesting, but I always kept, whenever I found some really fascinating facts about the brain in, in the papers I was reading or in the, in the findings in the laboratory, I kept talking to all my friends about it and all the other people who are not neuroscientists and they were, they seemed fascinated. So I thought like, why, why don't we talk about it to the general public? And that's where kind of, you know, my kind of spark came to, to de deliver neuroscience seminars. Initially, I started doing that in schools for teenagers. And then later on, I started public talks and seminars. I, I talk in my book about that journey in greater detail. But I think that that's kind of, I realized that my sweet spot was actually applying neuroscience knowledge and helping people to understand why we are the way we are. And that's really why I did choose neuroscience in the first place. But I think being in academia, doing research alone, wasn't sufficient to achieve that goal. No, I, th I think that's really interesting, Garby, because obviously that's how we, we first met at mm. one of your lectures. And I think you're, you're really good at giving this information about neuroscience in a very uh, simple and understandable way. And I think the whole idea of each of us understanding you know, why we act the way we do, and there's almost a base level of why we do these things, um, and that's down to our brain. So I think if you can understand that, then you can understand why you do the things that you do, and then potentially you can change. And, and I suppose okay. it's also really interesting about your father, yeah, and you, you're saying you had migraines as well, because I think sometimes a lot of the things that we do come from early childhood experiences which make a huge impact on you so that that's really interesting with your with your backstory so I, I was just looking at your book and you know loved it um, and I really like the way that it's divided into sort of three parts you know changing the self the results and relationships so should we start with the the first part with you know changing yourself because I think in terms of personal development I always think you need to start with yourself first to make change would you like to maybe give us a few insights into that? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think that's probably one of the key starting points. Uh, in this chapter, in this kind of fraction of the book, I have three chapters. One is changing your habits. Uh, the second, changing emotional patterns. And third one, you know, changing personality. And I think in, in that part, the most important thing is really to realize why we are as we are. Why, why did we develop and acknowledge and actually take, take, you know, not take responsibility, but kind of have um, appreciation, I suppose, for us being as we are. And, and that comes from firstly understanding what's the point of creating habits? What do they serve? Why did why do we actually start bad habits? What good point do they serve? What's the point of emotions? What are the emotions telling us? And also why our personality happened to be as it is. And I think once we kind of understand deep-rooted kind of mechanisms underlying it, we firstly kind of start to understand what is it serving. 
And the second step is, of course, to understand which parts of it can we change? And if so, how can we change that? And I think that has to be addressed before we go into any other steps, because although each topic is kind of connected to one another, but I think that's probably the most powerful topic to get started with. And sometimes that alone is sufficient to change your results and change your relationships, of course. But, you know, in, in the other chapters, I talk about other other patterns as well. And I think that's a really interesting point you, you made there, because I think if you could understand why we are the way we are, you can almost have sympathy for ourselves. And actually, a lot of the things that we do are not intentional, but it's the way we've evolved as human beings. Because I suppose back in the day, our real threats were trying to fight off the, the tigers and the mm -hmm. You know the the wild beasts, um, but now threats are very different. So when you're triggered, your response is for the tiger or the the mammoth, not for your boss or your partner. Mm -mm. And the difference being also that a lot of those triggers used to be very temporary. But having such a powerful thinking machine, we can trigger any fear any time of the day or night. So a lot of those worries and stress responses don't leave us when the Actually, there isn't physical threat out there. So I think we, I talk, I talk in later chapters about it in a greater depth. But, but I think that also helps us to explain why we feel as we feel if we're constantly under that state. So sorry, so to go, to go back to habits, Garbia. So what, why is it so difficult uh, to change and why shouldn't you uh, suddenly stop uh, habits? Well, each habit serves something. So firstly, we form habits to save energy and to do things much quicker, and to be able to focus on other things. So we delegate to, into, to, to subconscious brain centers. Um, Paul McLean created a model, a true brain model, where he calls those centers mammal brain centers. They're much more efficient. They require less energy, and we can become better and better and better over time. If we practice, we can perfect those things. That's why we become good at uh, driving a car if we keep on repeating that action. The only thing is that some habits we form the form for the reasons that are valid at the given situation. However, the habit might be hurting us in the future. So, for example, if you're really stressed and you get into the habit eating sugary snacks, Sugar helps to reduce stress response. So in fact, it helps you to get through very stressful situations and keeping sane in a sense. However, if you, we maintain the habit further, and if it becomes a strong daily habit, it can actually cause harm in the future, right? Realizing what is that habit, habit serving us and what are the ways to replace it? So in fact, just addressing that, okay, maybe it served when I was stressed. I'm no longer stressed, so I don't really need it. But however, out of that, I get variety. I get uplift in my mood. What are the other ways I could get that change in my physiology from? And it could be, I don't know, doing some push-ups, calling a friend, watching a funny video on the phone, right? So there, there could be different things. And it requires really kind of doing very honest inventory of your habits, especially the ones we don't like. But the first step is really to honor what is that they are serving. We can't just take the habits out because those needs are valid. And just in brief, so there is kind of, there is many, many different systems of needs, but one of them states that there are six major needs. Safety, variety, loving or connection, significance, contribution beyond yourself, and uh, growth. We, when we don't feel safe, we often do the habits that makes, make us feel a little bit 
safer. So that could be eating sugar snacks, that could be familiar activities, such as browsing social media, watching telly, and so on. So if you go back and find what is the cause of that behavior, and if it's lack of safety, you need to fill that glass first before you can quit that habit, in other words. And getting creative in what ways could help you to meet more safety. So so it's really just trying to understand what your habits are, acknowledge those, and then figure out um, you know, what is driving those habits. Is, is that right, Gabia? Yeah, well, so figure out the needs these habits are meeting and finding alternative to meet those needs and practicing the alternative until it becomes a habit. Brilliant. And I also like the point you make that uh, if you do have a habit, it actually uh, consumes less energy. Because I think I remember in one of your lectures, you mentioned that we only have a finite amount of and it, well, our brain can only do so much processing, especially for difficult decision making. It, it consumes a lot of energy. So if you can make something into a habit, then it consumes less energy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, it's automated. It doesn't require conscious processing. It's much quicker and much le- less energy consuming. However, to form new habits take time and repetition. I think that's, that's where it becomes challenging to change habits because it's like if you imagine if there is a path in the through like let's say some sort of bushland right or through the really tall grass or whatever and you've been walking one path over and over again you created a road there and suddenly so you know that road is not taking me where I want to I want to go this way and you start going that path and one time you go that path another time you go different path neither of those paths would become a strong road. So choosing one and actually going through it over and over again till actually becomes a road. And that applies to, to kind of our habits. So because for new habits, we need to firstly, to create new networks, strengthen them and strengthen them till actually they become so strong that the other habits, we don't really even use the old habits. And with time, those networks that created the old habits will become weaker. And the new habit will become a default choice. Because, you know, if you imagine that road to the other side becomes wider, wider and easier to follow, and the suddenly grass will start to grow on the road which you used to take. I remember Steve Jobs, he always used to wear the same jeans and uh, sweatshirt. And I think part of that was he was just not having to spend energy wearing different clothes. And I suppose in, in our daily routine, if you can take the trivial decisions and just make them routine, then you're, you're really sort of spending your energy on the big issues like your your relationship your career yeah I think that's I talk about it in decision making chapter a lot but um sometimes when we have too many decisions to make we can get stuck in analysis paralysis and eliminating the decisions that don't matter you know I use in the book like a chapter like choosing which yogurt to buy you know it doesn't really matter is it strawberry banana whatever flavor unless okay if if you're dairy intolerant and choose the one with dairy that matters but you know, for most of us, it doesn't really matter. Brilliant. Anyway, we can, we can talk about that later. But um, I suppose um, emotions, um, that, that's obviously uh, something that is important to all of us. So what is the importance of emotions? And how can you actually take control of your emotions? Is there a way to do that, Gabia? Well, firstly, we have to understand the point of emotions. So emotions are there to warn us what things in our environment are harmful for us or what things are good for us. So emotions we don't like, such as anxiety, fear, anger, they warns us, sadness as well, actually. They warn us that actually something is not quite right out there. And emotions such as love, joy, trust, they, they tell us that actually we're in a good place. 
So that's kind of a primary role of emotions to steer us away from the dangerous situations or situations where we are not meeting our needs to the situations where which are serving us better. Now, the issue arises that our human brain evolved so that there is a rational part on top of emotional centers and just purely thoughts can trigger those emotions. So it requires, when we want to really start mastering our emotions, firstly, it requires being in tune with emotions to like understanding what, what emotion we're feeling, why we are feeling it, identifying, is that something from the environment that is actually triggering that? And if so, maybe I need to change the environment, right? Yeah, totally. Yeah. Uh, and if it's our thinking pattern, then we need to actually challenge our thinking patterns. And that's where like coaching, the whole profession of coaching comes in handy, which kind of the, 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 in coaching, there's many tools to challenge your thinking and help you to kind of really up, up, update your rational, rational patterns. So, so I suppose it's trying to just see what the reality is and, and distance that from what you think is the reality. Is, is that broadly correct? Uh, to, uh, to, to, to a point, yes. So I, th- I think the reality, but also I think there is a lot of uncertainty. I think the uncertainty is the biggest trigger of emotions we don't like. And kind of just educating your brain that, you know, the fact that you don't know whether whether you'll have a job in two years or not doesn't mean that you're going to die. You know, it, it doesn't mean because for your mammal brain, it just freaks out. It, it creates that huge anxiety. So we need to kind of keep on gently uh, uh, kind of updating the information but also there is a third step so in in addition to assessing environment assessing thinking there is a third step which is soothing your emotional centers it's a bit what we do with babies when they're upset right they cuddle them give them a bottle of milk just you know do, like make sure they're nice and warm well we need to do that for ourselves as well and our emotional centers over over years get more and more, more sensitized to the, the triggers. And sometimes the reactions can get stronger and stronger. In particular, if we feel anxious, sad, depressed, we need to sort of find a way to calm those emotions down to some extent if we can. And, and activities such as breathing exercises, meditation, physical exercise, time with loved ones, or doing some other t- activities which kind of take your mind off the stressors can help to kind of soothe soothe your emotional state. And, and you're very good in your lectures to do the meditation and the jumping up and down, which is quite good. We do both. We yeah. do both. <laughs> <laughs> I've done it so many times and it, it's fun. Um, but one, one interesting point, I think, in terms of the working environment, and I, I'm sure this is a, a situation many of us have fe- uh, uh, faced, say you have a problem with your boss and then you're suddenly triggered. Um, There's an argument at work and your emotional side is saying, oh, the guy or girl doesn't like me, there's an issue. Whereas then the rational side is to step back. In that sort of practical situation, if if suddenly there is an issue at work or in your personal life, what's the best way to try and almost step back and how how would you deal with that sort of situation, Gabia? Well, it's very situational. So I don't like to give advice to the situations because for different people, the same situation could call for different solution. So, so I, I wouldn't, wouldn't jump into the suggestion there. But firstly, understanding what exactly about the situation is causing the emotions and whether emotions are proportional to the situation. Because, well, let's imagine you get uh, criticized 
every day since your your childhood, then minor criticism can suddenly cause a huge explosion of emotions to you. It just kind of, then you would need to realize, okay, this person just said that my presentation wasn't as good as last time. Is that correct? Well, maybe actually it was correct if you think about rationally. But emotional reaction could be, oh, that's it, I'm not going to present anymore, right? So it could be caused by all this iceberg underneath there, not only the kind of the criticism about the presentation. So we have to really be like detectives to figure out which fraction of emotion is caused by this situation, which fraction from the past, and then choose what is the kind of the most reasonable response at that time. So if somebody actually criticized you unfairly, maybe sometimes it's worthwhile to bring that up and see once you actually resolve the emotional pattern, maybe saying, you know what, to be honest, you you know, we discussed what, what aspects of my work I haven't completed this week, but we haven't discussed what things I actually have done well this week. And this is a, a loads of extra work in this sector I've done, which kind of in, in interfered with me not completing these tasks. So it's very situational, I would say. But I, in the book, I do share some tools which could help you to figure out the best response in your situations. And, and I like that analogy about uh, trying to be a detective, really trying to you know, drill down and, and figure out what is the underlying issue. And mm-hmm. I think that's important. Yes. And I think that's necessary for us to understand our emotional side. Brilliant. Now, I suppose moving on to changing results, which includes you know, changing your productivity, brain health and decision making. Um, I think this will be really relevant to our listeners uh, who are trying to uh, in- enhance and improve their careers. Now, are there any simple ways to improve uh, your motivation and productivity at work? So firstly, I kind of like to move from motivation to more inspiration. So motivation is pumping yourself up to kind of the, do the task you don't want to do, which is very it requires constant, constant energy in order to do so. Now, if you really get clear what things you really, really enjoy doing, what things are truly important to you, and link that task to those things, how is that task serving you in these criteria, you would naturally feel more inspired to do that task. And being motivated would just follow naturally from it. Um, So I find that being much more um, long-lasting effect. Also, sometimes it requires, you know, assessing some tasks we actually could delegate. We can't be motivated at every single task. There are some tasks we find it utterly boring and would rather get help somebody do it. So just being realistic, how much we can actually take on our shoulders what exactly do we want to take on our shoulders and and kind of being being getting a little bit smart with it and of course there is some situations where we can't delegate the tasks we truly hate so then linking them to our highest values would help us to actually complete those tasks quicker without less procrastination and just seeing the how those tasks are serving us in other factors, in other criteria. So for example, if you are a person truly motivated about, let's say your children and really, really care about your children, but you absolutely hate, you know, doing dishes and, and ironing and all the other things, just seeing how that is serving you being a good mother or father, how is that serving your children to get their needs met and so on. Now to, to come up with more like career relevant example is like, for example, you really enjoy uh, doing presentations, let's say, and presenting to your clients, but you, let's, let's imagine you hate like doing all the detailed research into, in, that comes into it. But if you write a list of benefits, how you doing really detailed in-depth research would help you serve your clients best would help you to create really, really witty and powerful presentations to your clients and will help you to stand out 
as a presenter to your clients from, from the crowd, that suddenly might become uh, less of a chore and might become kind of much, much more part of the same process, you know? So in a way, it's trying to reframe the situation and trying to see what the potential benefits are. Um, yeah, it's, it's changing perception. I think a lot of, a lot of uh, uh, you know, kind of getting things done is, is changing your perception. Brilliant. Um, and, and I suppose, you know, if we look at productivity, there's also the sort of procrastination issue there, isn't there? Um, which a lot of us face, um, you know, just try to get, get going with a task. What, what are your thoughts? As with everything else I talk in my book, you know, we need to figure out why we procrastinate in the first place. So if you have, imagine if you have too many jobs on your plate and you get so overwhelmed just from thinking about it, needless to say, you would not be willing to start those tasks so the, and that's that so-called like overdoer procrastinator type so in that situation it, you would you would need to really like kind of figure out which jobs you actually want to focus on and which ones you could delegate somebody who is perfectionistic procrastinator will procrastinate for different reasons they want every single result to be perfect and when they can't just like, even if the things are completed, they want to keep polishing and polishing and polishing. So for them, it's actually learning to let go and submit things before they are like, you know, you, you kind of suck the whole juice out of it. So we need to figure out what are the root causes of procrastination. And having, I talk in my book about six types of procrastinators, that's one of the ways you, to group people based on the causes of the procrastination. And we need to tackle the cause not the behavior. Sure. Behavior would naturally resolve once the cause is resolved. Brilliant. Um, and I suppose another issue that some of us face is things like multitasking from a scientific and neuroscience basis. I think multitasking just doesn't work. Is that, is that correct? Well, uh, we don't really multitask. We switch tasks. Uh, so we can't do multiple tasks at the same time. Uh, not not in the sense we wish we did. Uh, we keep on switching between the tasks. The switching is quite quick, but if you're switching all the time, uh, you lose a lot of time and energy. And that, that's what we end up doing when we think we multitask. Now, in terms of productivity, they usually results in more time wasted, less things done, and more mistakes. Uh, so often it's not a good idea. Now, there are some situations where we can't help, but we need to keep switch tasking. I'm sure a lot of people now, you know, working from home uh, with maybe families and, and, and kids of school can face that. That's, you know, of, of course, ideal case scenario I would want to just be in the room and, and work and focus on the task, but I can't. I have other things to do and that's okay as well. So it's, it has to be adjusted to the situation. But when we can afford to single focus, usually single focusing produces better results. So, so ideally just try and do one task stick to it have a break and then maybe move on is, is that broadly correct kind of roughly so i talk in the book about two different attention networks i don't want to go into too much detail about it one attention network helps us to really focus on on the task the other helps us to kind of notice everything around so we need a good balance between those two or else we will struggle to switch off so we need we need to kind of be able to focus on the task for a certain period of time, take frequent breaks. So we actually uh, don't get in, in such a way that we struggle to switch off in the evening. We lay in the bed and we can't fall asleep because the mind is still buzzing about it. So, so we, we need a healthy balance between them both. And in general, taking frequent breaks is a very important part of the staying productive. Yeah, that, that's what, one of the tips I like from your talks, taking breaks. Mm. 
we, we talked about decision making briefly before, but how, how do you think you can become a better communicator, decision maker and leader? I suppose it kind of has quite a lot of factors in it, isn't it? In terms of decision making, I think kind of learning uh, about in the book, I talk about different decision-making systems, system one and system two, and brain area that connects them both. And, and actually, all the decisions have both components to it, even the most rational ones. So really realizing, doing a bit of assessment, what issues do you have with your decision-making? Is it that you take too long? Is it that you struggle to make decisions? Is it that you make decisions too quickly and then regret? And, you know, assessing your decision-making and then changing accordingly. I have practical tips for each each of those types. In terms of communicator and leader, I think there is a common denominator there is making people feel safe, helping to make people feel safe and avoiding to trigger threat response in people. That's something perhaps majority of people have encountered when you say something seemingly not harmful and the other person just explodes or shuts down. Or maybe we have experienced ourselves, of course, when somebody said yeah. something which didn't seem like that hurtful to them, but it really hit, hit the um, painful spot for us. And the same happens. So both in terms of leaders and in terms of any kind of communication, that that's the, probably the most important balance to find, uh, how to communicate without triggering amygdala response. And in that way, we will keep because once the amygdala response has been triggered the rational mind temporarily shuts down so we become very reactive we say things we don't mean uh, we we can't really think things through you know our thinking changes for a short period of time so that's not the best way to get best out of people if we manage to communicate in the way that doesn't trigger that in the first place we already you know are in much much better position and, and actually just to clarify the the amygdala cabia can you just maybe talk about the amygdala response yes yeah, so so amygdala is a tiny really ancient area in our brain which is responsible for detecting any danger once it detects danger it creates anxiety fear or anger it could create an, a, aggression as well in addition to so it creates the kind of physical response in the body you know where we feel we feel differently right in our body when we feel anxious or angry or so on but also it can temporarily deactivate brain area the front called prefrontal cortex as amygdala and prefrontal cortex are connected to one another and that's so-called amygdala hijack uh, and that's why, you know, if we are in a really bad state, we say things we don't mean, we do things we later regret and so on. That response lasts, the very acute phase lasts about, you know, five minutes or so, but probably 15 minutes is best to kind of wait out and not to make any important decisions. I really like the study done by John Gottman in his, in his lab. Uh, basically, the couples were arguing and his staff just said, oh, excuse me, the, mic the, the microphones are not working. Could you just stop for a minute while we fix the microphones? And by the way, in that study, the couples had to argue. That was their task, you know, to talk about something <laughs> really kind of they had disagreement about. And they were, you know, they were getting really carried, carried away, you know, saying really hurtful things. And then they pretended that they are fixing microphones for 15 <laughs> minutes da -da -da, and said, okay, guys, continue, you know. We, we, we're good to go. And suddenly, they, once you listen to the conversation, it's like completely different people talking. They again, they can listen, they're respectful, they're considered. And that happens to every single one of us. It's a very physical process. We can't really stop it by well. Uh, but is there a way of, say, um, re relaxing or try to breathe to try and you know, bring it down? Is there anything one can do? Um, any once you're actually in that state, it's best to do nothing. 
okay. period of time. It's best to just kind of, you know, Take just for a few out. minutes, just, just time out. Exactly. Then once some of rationality comes in, you can breathe, do breathing exercise, go for a walk, you know, ask for a hug or whatever. But for the very short period of time, it's like we, we, we temporarily become insane. Let's put it that way. You see red and you just want to go crazy, basically. More or less. Yeah. So, so really, it's a question of trying to recognize when that's happening and then just um, yeah, go, go off somewhere and not making any crucial decisions at that point. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And kind of finding the way, you know, in your, maybe in your relationship, or if you have that as a family pattern or at work, kind of finding the way to communicate that, okay, that, okay, you know, there is moments when I get in a state, I can't really think I need 15 minutes just on my own. So maybe just go to the toilet with your phone and just play silly games on your phone or something, you know, just do what, whatever that can help to win time. So I need 15 minutes for, for myself to just let my brain come back online to, to be able to stay rational and think again in this kind of the way I would like to. Because I think once we kind of make the decisions in, in that situation, we often regret them because we, don't, we can't think things through. But the worst is we aren't self-aware in that situation. Yeah, so I think it's best to make it almost into kind of some sort of habit or ritual just to give your brain a chance. And once you notice you're getting that, okay, 15 minutes, I, I'm off. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. And, and sorry, just going back to decision maker, you obviously mentioned, I think, system one and system two. Um, and I think that's based off, is it Daniel Kahneman? Is of, this is, yes, this was proposed by Kahneman Tversky, yeah. Okay. Um, so I, I suppose we won't go into that now, but obviously it's in your book. And, and if anybody's interested in learning more, Kahneman has written a, a great book and there's plenty of research. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And there is another really great book. At the end of my book, I share all the kind of resources for the recommended reading. There is a really good book by Antonio Damasio, a neuroscientist called Descartes' Error, which basically discusses the brain regions, which actually link those both system one and system two. Brilliant. And I, I suppose the other interesting thing I, I'd like to, to talk about is this idea of gut instinct, because everybody says, oh, I, I made this decision based on my gut. Is there any science to that um, about you know, gut instinct? I think it's debatable. There is a lot of now sort of science going on about the neuroscience system in the gut. But in the kind of conventional science, when we talk about the gut instinct, we talk about those subconscious areas of the brain. And because when they are activated, they make feelings in the body. Like, so for example, when we fall in love, we, we have a feeling in our heart. When we are nervous, we have feeling in the stomach and so on. So those subconscious brain areas, they of course control all of the bodily systems. So it does feel like if it's gut instinct, but actually it's 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 created in the brain. Okay, um, I mean, say before an interview uh, or you know a slightly pressurized situation, or even before say doing this podcast, I felt you know slightly nervous. But I suppose um, I, the way I like to think about it is it's almost as if. I have to try and do better and, and use that fear or worry to uh, make me uh, perform better. Is there any sort of science behind that or the whole idea of trying to get in a, a, a more alert situation your body is trying to prepare yourself a, a, a yeah yeah so again talking about you stress and de-stress isn't it so so i think in general levels of alertness created by fear or anxiety they are not necessarily a bad thing it depends on the extent if it's overwhelming extent that it actually causes you know amygdala hijack that's not great it does it does inevitably 
compromise performance. But if it's at the level where it just kind of makes your heart beat faster, it makes you feel more alive and more focused on that task. So for example, when driving, I get that when I'm driving. And if it's the somewhat challenging situation, it just makes me really tunnel focus on the driving, ignore everything else. And therefore, I become a better driver at that given moment. Now, if I'm really overwhelmed, if somebody just honked me and, you know, there is too much going on and I'm so overwhelmed, I'm better off stopping on the hard shoulder <laughs> and letting my brain to calm down. No, I, th- I think that, that that's, that's good advice for, for all of us. One other thing I think you talk about in your book is being, uh, you know, looking after uh, our brains. What sort of advice would you suggest or what, any strategies on that part, Gabia? Yes, that's, I don't have a very quick answer to that, but I'll, I'll try to be quicker. So the brain, brain in general, of course, as any, any other organ, needs glucose, oxygen, all the nu- similar nutrients. But in addition to that, in the brain, for the neurons, the brain cells to function, it needs to create so-called neurotransmitters, brain chemicals it uses to communicate and to produce those neurotransmitters. So, of course, we need certain foods that kind of help those neurotransmitters to be created. But we also need a healthy gut because of some of those neurotransmitters precursors or the kind of molecules from which neurotransmitters are later created are created in your gut. So your microbiome in the gut is very important for that. Again, all uh, you know, all the vitamins, especially B group vitamins, also contribute to that process. So that's kind of the the basics of it. But there is fi- some interesting findings about leaky gut syndrome that basically show that inflammation in the gut not only can interfere with that process, but it can also inflammation could travel into the brain as well and to the brain blood vessels. It's more extreme cases. It's not, it's not very common, but in, in extreme cases of intolerances, it can happen. And the symptoms could be very devastating. It could be schizophrenia-like symptoms for people who actually Gosh. wouldn't have had schizophrenia in the first place. Again, I'm not saying that all schizophrenia cases are to do with inflammation. Of course, yeah. Most certainly not. But, but in some cases that needs to be addressed. And, and, and in general, for example, when celiac people keep eating gluten, you, you see, very commonly see depression, anxiety, issues with kind of memory, attention, and other cognitive functions, which actually improve significantly after they go on gluten-free diet. So, so there, is, there is very interesting, interesting links there. In general, I kind of really figure out what things work for you and what things don't work for you. Doesn't mean that we all have to cut gluten off. No, you know, it's most people actually can eat it successfully. But if somebody does struggle with gluten, they certainly have to, if they want their brains to function well. Um, so, so in the book, I do share some tips, uh, you know, how to really figure out what things work, what things don't work for you. Again, I think each chapter of my book is like really work it out for yourself. What what does work? What doesn't work for you? There isn't one size fits all, really. I think that's really interesting is that whole idea of almost you taking ownership of your situation and trying to figure out what, because everybody is different and everybody's an individual. But I think in terms of some broad things, taking exercise, making sure you eat well, uh, having plenty of sleep, hydration. Sleep is crucial. Yeah, sleep is crucial. Not only kind of, you know, of replenishing brain in terms of the nutrients, but in terms of giving a brain a break to process information it has encountered during the day. 
and, and a lot of things happen when we sleep, actually, that are crucial for well, well-being of the brain. And, and, I, and I really like the whole idea of, I think, when you're not thinking about something, you're just almost going offline. That's when sometimes these amazing insights happen because um, you know, you're just sometimes when you're focused too much on one area, things just don't come to you. But you hear all these amazing stories of creativity where suddenly you're in the shower, or you're taking a walk and suddenly you, you have these incredible ideas and insights. Don't you think so? Yeah, there, there, there seems to be uh, some, some, something there. And when we sleep or when we're in that so-called, you know, default mode network, when we're just daydreaming, things that don't seem related are matched together. So I think that's kind of a ne- necessary step, I suppose, with novel for novel ideas. In particular, when we sleep, the brain kind of just matches the information you encounter to all the other things you know. Uh, so it's kind of needless to say that has a higher chance to produce insights deep insights so, so sometimes just taking a break and watching youtube that's not a bad yeah. thing yeah, or going sleeping sleeping on the problem <laughs> that 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 works for me now um th- this this really is a, a focused on on career development but i think we're all fascinated by relationships so what is the secret to strengthening strengthening your relationships and the impact relationships have on our brains it's a good question isn't it <laughs> That's a million dollar question, Galbi, if you can solve that. <laughs> yeah. So I think it's 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 not it's not a straightforward answer to that. So firstly, we need to figure out why we form relationships with certain people and what effect these relationships have on us. Herville Hendricks in his Imago theory proposes that the early childhood experiences form an image of what we later on use to find partners in the future as it has to be certain level of familiarity to be drawn to a person. I don't know if it has ever happened to you that you met somebody which on paper, it seemed like to tick all the boxes, seemed like an amazing person, but you just didn't feel anything for that person. It just didn't click, right? Of course, yeah. And 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 that kind of, according to Herville, it didn't match your image, imago, right? Uh, So it has to be certain level of familiarity. Now, issues with that is like, if you had certain triggers in your childhood, like for example, if I know if your parents were critical or other other kind of things that keep keep triggering your amygdala. And if you use that image to find a future partner, needless to say, you will end up with somebody who will press on your childhood wounds. So again, so in order to kind of find and create actually successful relationship, firstly, we need to be aware that actually happiness and just things being super easy and happy is not really realistic all the time. Uh, now, if things are just really hard work and, you know, completely, you know, driving us crazy, that's not great either. So somewhere in between where you kind of see that there is a relationship is really sound, it's where you want to be, and both people are on the same page, and people are prepared to work through those past patterns to create harmony, to create true friendship and, and partnership, that's an amazing start, right? Also, uh, kind of having realistic expectations on relationship. And sometimes we do just want a relationship to stay in a romantic phase where everything is like we f- 100% focus on our partner, nothing else matters. We just want to do everything together. Whatever you want is fine by me. <laughs> but that's not realistic. Yeah. After after about, you know, six to, to six months to two years, that phase ends. But if you expect the phase to last forever, you're doomed for failure. Uh, so the only way to make it last forever is to keep switching partners and just be in the romantic relationship all the time, right? But if you want to actually really real 
lasting, true partnership. So accepting that this phase will eventually end. Then there is a power struggle phase where there is those wounds start coming out. We start pressing on the painful buttons and we need to find a way to sort them out. Maybe we need to adjust our behavior that we don't trigger those points as much. Maybe we need to find a way, honestly, talk about those things. And maybe that would be sufficient. Now, the third stage, cultivating true friendship is probably the most important one. Really figure being committed to actually being there for other person and getting to know the other person. And that's what makes makes relationships really flourish in the later years, keeping interest and attention on another relationship. And in my book, I share uh, John Gottman's actually seven, seven stages in creating that lasting relationship and, and cultivating that true friendship. And I suppose even on a business perspective, that whole idea of trying to understand, you know, even if it's your colleague or coworker, it's just trying to understand what their motivations are, what their drivers are, even if it's not a romantic relationship, you know, just normal friendships between colleagues or friends. If you can empathize with their situation, um, even if you're managing somebody, just try, try to understand what their motivations are, what their desires are then you, know, you may not be able to always solve everything, but at least empathizing and getting in that person's shoes uh, is helpful. Yeah, exactly. So what you're talking about is very good point. So it's basically, we can help, but we assume the other person is like I am. So I assume that you like, you know, you, you think similarly, that you need similar things, that you have similar work ethics, but you probably don't. I mean, there might be certain similarities between us, but there will inevitably be differences. But making things explicit and asking questions like, what, what exactly do you need from me now, right? How can I best help you? When you're in this situation, do you prefer me to leave you to get things sorted yourself? Or do you prefer me to sit with you and go through things together? Because different people would prefer different things. And so kind of, again, both as a colleague, as a manager, as a friend, I think it's kind of asking questions to make to make things explicit would kind of firstly honor that other person is different than you it would like remind you to stop assuming things and secondly it would just by asking questions like that the person would feel heard would feel understood will feel cared for and that in in general increases the the kind of uh, the need for significance love and connection in people and that alone sometimes is enough and if then they have specific things they need to ask you know they they have a platform to do that and i think that that's such a great point you make gabby the whole Mm -hmm. idea of assuming too much um it's very dangerous and especially if you're working on a project and maybe you're new to that person i think it's really important to be very explicit and say look when what is it uh, that you expect of me uh, when is the deadline? What are the deadlines? What do I need to produce by you know, X, Y, and Z time? And I think mm. just having, and, and actually, I think having the conversation also brings things out in that other person that they may not have thought about. Um, and this whole idea of maybe speaking it into reality, I don't know if there's any, is there any neuroscience basis about that? I've always heard people talking about speaking something into reality. What exactly do you mean by that? I know it's almost like saying, yeah, I am going to, uh, you know, I will be, promoted in two years time, you know, or I will, you know, have this great job in two years time, or I will have this great partner. Have you ever come across that term? Speaking? It's like a little bit, um, what was it called? The attraction theory. Is that, is that what you mentioned? Um, to be honest, I don't believe in the magically things happening. 
Sure. Just you mention and they happen. But if something is truly important to you and you keep thinking about it, you keep mentioning it and you actually are dedicated and working towards it and kind of keep on mentioning and making, you know, kind of almost like commitment to yourself to focus on that and refocus yourself, of course, that would help kind of show you which direction you're heading. Now, if you just mention, I want to have a great partner, but at the same time, you you kind of don't do anything towards it, that probably wouldn't help. So I think there is kind of a difference between people who are really committed and dedicated to, to the goal and people or any of us can get in a state when we're a little bit diluted and want things just to be done for us when you get in that kind of childlike state i just want things to happen your life is too difficult and then just imagining the things like would happen miraculously then i I, know it it can it can give hope you know in some states when we if we're in really bad state and really depressed and so on if we kind of get that if that gives us hope and helps us to sail through the hardship maybe it's fine but it might not necessarily produce the results but if you actually keep saying, you know what, I'm really focused. This is what I want to achieve. This is this is what, what's really, really important to me. It can help to deal with hardship and kind of do what things, you know, it, what, what, what it takes to get there. And I, I think you've actually hit the nail on the head, Gabby. I think it it's maybe if, you, if you're starting to focus on something, then you're maybe changing your perception. So say if you... Um, want to improve um, you know, podcasting and you're looking for certain guests uh, and then maybe when you interact with people your brain is suddenly thinking oh yeah that that person is interesting um, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll email them or you know, from my perspective I was um, watching YouTube as I always do and I saw our, our mutual friend Christian Bush on there and I'd mm-hmm. never seen I'd never met him before I'd never seen him before but I thought yeah he's a you know, really good guy seems very friendly and I just emailed him you know, through LinkedIn, and then he's appearing on on, on the show. So you know, m- maybe from that perspective, it's just if you're thinking about something all the time, maybe that helps to change yeah. your perception and yeah. perspective. Yeah, well, you're doing the kind of work together, aren't you? You're watching YouTube. You're you're getting familiar with what actually people are would be good and what what's their work. You actually email them. And probably you will get some no's as a, you know, uh, hopefully not too many, but, but I think that's inevitable. Yeah, it's part of it's life. Part of life. And, and hopefully once your podcast builds, so imagine if you emailed Oprah now and wanted to interview her, probably an answer would be no. But if your podcast grew really, really big and you started kind of interviewing bigger and bigger people, have bigger, bigger and bigger following, suddenly once you email Oprah again, she might be interested. Maybe. They're saying. <laughs> exactly. Or, or Robert Cialdini. <laughs> you, never, you never know. So, Kabia, I, I think we've covered so many uh, you know, fascinating topics uh, in, in this discussion. I could speak to you for hours, uh, but obviously we, we have a limited amount of time. <laughs> Is there anything else that you'd like to add or, or we've missed out or just any other sort of high level things that, you know, apart from obviously buying your book, any, any other things that people should be thinking about, um, you know, in their, in their journey? I think the main thing is, like, there is nothing wrong with you. Whatever you're going through, whatever mistakes you think you made, whatever challenges you, you're going through, whatever patterns you keep falling back to, your brain has valid reasons to do so. It's not that you're floored. It's not that you're, like, kind of, there's something wrong with you. The, the brain is designed to do so. And the brain is getting some very important needs met that way. And, and, you know, needless to say, that's why those things persist. Uh, So in order to really get unstuck, you need to understand your brain. And you need to accept your brain for what it is. 
because a lot of a lot of tips and tricks and you know come across in personal development they are not congruent with how the brain works they, they just don't function that way so understanding your brain and accepting understanding where you came from understanding your history your your traumas your why you form certain habits why you start, form certain relationship dynamics would would really help you to kind of accept yourself for who you are i suppose and i think that's necessary step to change which is kind of it seems counterintuitive doesn't it yeah no no totally and and i think that whole point about everybody's experience it's all individual and that helps uh, shape our perspective on the way we view the world and the way i view things is completely different from you and sometimes when you're you know when two people are recounting the same event there's such a difference mm-hmm. in in what the facts are and that's down to perception to some extent yeah, is that yeah. right and and unfortunately yes and unfortunately that sometimes does lead us to feeling lonely or to feeling kind of nobody can truly get me and that's okay that's how it should be because your brain this brain you know your brain <laughs> is unique Gabby uh, showing us very, a brain now. <laughs> this is my brain. I took it out before the podcast. It's unique. Nobody has exact same brain. Nobody has exact same content in the brain. So in fact, you you are the first person who need to befriend it and to be there for your brain, to be there for yourself because nobody else can truly be in the same space and understand you 100%. Gabby, that that that's amazing. And j- just to remind our our listeners, the Gabby's book why the F can't I changed uh, will be published on I think it's the 21st of January is that is that right Gabia correct and uh, Gabia is also contactable via LinkedIn Twitter and Facebook any other channels my website my website my uh, my brain during the day um, okay. you can also kind of find the more information there Brilliant. Um all these all these uh, bits of information will be on the um the show notes so you can just look at that. But Gabia, um I really I'm so honored to have you here as my first guest because really it, it was quite a inspirational moment going to your first lecture. It really made a lot of sense uh when when I was looking at the things that I was doing in my own life and I really think trying to understand the brain uh helps you understand yourself and the things that you do so you know it's been such a pleasure and really enjoyed uh chatting with you so thank you thank so you much Gabby and great success with your book oh thank you so much it was it was great to be here thank, thank you. you Gabby take care bye 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 thank you so much for listening and staying to the end that was such a fun interview with Gabby I hope you enjoy learning more about her journey, neuroscience, and how it may assist you. If you would like to listen to more episodes, please consider subscribing to the podcast, which will be available on your favorite providers, and subscription is free. If you wish to learn more about any of the resources mentioned in this episode, please take a look at the show notes which are available online. If you enjoyed the podcast, I would love to read your review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks once again for listening. and i hope that you will join me in the future